0: Okay, welcome back to another episode of Pacific Legends Unleashed That's a bit casual Yeah Okay It's episode, what is it, episode 9? Yeah, you're getting
1: Novelties falling off You're a bit, bit fully Pacific Legends Unleashed There yeah. you go on everybody
0: Okay So we're going to unleash the third episode of uh, Charles Upham Yep, what a guy what a, what a guy So How many Victoria Crosses has he got at this point? Just one Only the one? Okay But there's another one pending What, spoiler alert? Potentially Yep Spoiler alert. What's Sorry. he ever done? Yeah. <laughs> so if you remember from the last episode, basically Upham was in North Africa doing some some crazy stuff, blowing up jeeps and trucks and...
1: Doing some bravery. Everything else. Gallantry. Gallantry in the face of mm. enemy fire.
0: We don't use that word anymore, do we? No. Gallantry.
1: I was reading about the Victoria Cross. Apparently, ori- originally the citation, or, or maybe even what was engraved on the medal was something like, for outstanding bravery. And Queen Victoria was like, no, no. I don't want people to think that only the brave can get this. It should be for
0: gallantry. What is the definition of gallantry?
1: I don't know. And I could have made all of that up. It was heavily paraphrased from something I read quite some time ago. I'm
0: just going to start using it in everyday conversation. Yeah.
1: That was very gallant of you. Yeah. Yeah. Do that you. will be my feedback on student work. Do you think that'll fly? This paragraph's really gallant. Yeah. <laughs> Such a gallant writer.
0: Yeah. So bring us back from that tangent that you just took, off, took S- us off sorry on. Sorry about that. Uh... He was in North Africa doing brave stuff Gallant, gallant stuff. tangently And then he got uh, wounded like usual mm. Got his arm half blown off Yep. Took some shrapnel in the leg Basically couldn't walk couldn't You're
1: going to have. have to cut that arm off, surely
0: Couldn't move, yeah Everyone thought he's losing his arm Yep. And uh, they were captured by the Germans Taken to a basement, essentially With a bunch of other wounded men and things were looking pretty grim down Charlie there. Charlie just
1: sees bodies dragged out all around him.
0: People were losing limbs left, right and centre. Yeah. And uh, when it came to his turn, he managed to somehow convince the doctor not to take his arm off. Which limb have you got in the centre? Hey. What, what, what did you say? Mate, <laughs> I'm going out on a limb here. Okay. So, and uh, from, from in North Africa, he's been taken across to Italy. He spent some time in a hospital. He's kind of got his arms sorted out. Mm-hmm. Stayed on. Yeah, he managed to keep it. Finally got a decent, decent medical treatment. And he's semi-back in the game. He's still pretty, like, wasted. But he can walk. Yeah. He can talk. It's about all he needs. He's healthy enough. So they've decided to move him to a prisoner of war camp. So we left the story. Basically, he'd just been moved to Medina, which is a normal prisoner of war camp. And once he arrives, he realizes it's full of other New Zealand soldiers, which he's pretty stoked about.
1: The funky cold Medina—that song—is that about prisoner of war camp?
0: Uh, potentially. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I can. I let's, let's not look into let's that. Let's just assume that it is. <laughs> yeah. So Charles always talks about how he's forever grateful for the way he was treated, not by the Italians or the Germans, but by the other prisoners that were there, because they went out of their way to make sure Appen was. Um, looked after they gave him extra food they gave him extra like a jacket and a blanket and things like that to provide for his well-being because he's still pretty weak at this stage he's just yeah. come, come out of a hospital after some serious um, wounds his, his arm's still pretty stuffed
1: he's weak but legendary
0: yeah so with his health returning and Upham's now in the prisoner of war camp he starts to look for freedom He's not the kind of guy to just sit around and be like, oh, I'll just wait out the war in here for three years. Mm. No biggie.
1: Do crosswords.
0: Yeah, he just, he's pretty keen to get out. So, what he does is start scheming. Yep. So, the first thing he does in Medina is he, uh, he realizes the best place that you could escape from is actually the punishment cells. Why is that? Because they've got like a plasterboard ceiling so that you can, you can punch through that, no worries. So, Charlie was sent to the punishment cells. Yeah, so what he does is like decides, okay, I love winding up the guards anyway. Yeah. Why don't I intentionally get sent to the punishment cells so I can escape from there? Two for one. So he gets himself thrown into the punishment cells for probably something just, you know. Flipping the bird. Yeah, probably. And he starts his escape. He, he punches his way through the uh the ceiling and he gets he gets up in there I mean you've got to remember his arm's still stuffed but he takes his bed that's in the punishment cells and stands it upright and climbs up that and smashes a hole and he gets into the ceiling all's going well but then he realises that once he's in the ceiling he can't get the tiles on the roof free bugger so he's pretty stuck up there he's just hanging out in the ceiling <laughs> so the guards come into his room no one's there apart from an upright upright bed and a hole in the ceiling I don't remember him looking like this and they find him in the in the roof. Yeah, right. So uh, that's just one of many of Charles Upham's attempts at escaping from prison. Classic prank. So we're talking 1943, and finally the war is starting to turn in favour of the Allies, right? USA. In July comes the invasion of Sicily. Mussolini res- resigns. Mussolini?
1: Mussolini. Sure. I'm
0: going to go with Mussolini. Tomato? Tomato. The
1: big juice.
0: Yeah. He resigns, and the fascists were broken up. And then a few weeks later, the armistice with Italy was signed. So essentially, Italy's been sidelined. They're no longer involved. So here they are in Italy, and everything has changed. Things are looking up. Maybe, Maybe they're going to get released. Yeah. The British War Office sends an instruction to almost every prisoner of war camp that's in Italy. And it says, You've got to stay put when the war ends. Because what we're going to do is we're going to organise yourself back into units and then you're going to await orders because we're going to get you to do some more stuff. Fight. So basically they say, stay where you are. When the Italians leave, just stay there and we're going to send more orders once we figure out what's going on. The the crucial error in this is that no, no further orders were ever given. Yeah. So when the Italians kind of walked off and decided we're no longer in this war
1: just walked off <laughs> there was this
0: opportunity where the the prisoners of war could escape yeah but a lot of the men said hey we've been given orders to just stay put and we've got to organise ourselves because we might get further orders to go in and, and
1: yeah we could be of use
0: yeah so some people kind of said no, stuff that this is our chance we're leaving and the people that did that a lot of them made it a lot of them got out to the countryside and they were free but obviously Charles Upham he, he's by the book. He likes to follow orders. He's like, this is important in the war. I'm going to stay put. He follows orders that he thinks are worthwhile. So Charles and a bunch of other other the Kiwis stay there and wait for orders that never come. And they just then, hang out. And then the Germans... The Germans. The Germans sweep on in, into Italy and take over the uh, prisoner of war camps. Yeah, okay. The so. chance to leave has...
1: The window is slammed shut.
0: Has passed. So on twelfth of September nineteen forty three, the Germans took over, and they decided, look, let's ship these guys out of this, out of Italy, and let's send them into Germany. We've got some POW camps. Let's put them in there. I've heard of them. And Charles kind of recognises, oh, once once I get to Germany, it's going to be way harder to escape, and it's kind of like I really missed the boat here. Yeah, might still be a chance. Yeah. So. They're all loaded up into a convoy. While they're on their convoy, Upham's like, ooh, <laughs> why don't I, I give this a crack? So he, he uh, whilst they're taking a bit of a break, the, the vehicles have stopped. Yep. He kind of jumps out and just makes an absolute bolt for it into the, into the woods that are nearby and he's sprinting and there's bullets whizzing over his head because all the guards have started firing You know, yeah. there's a prisoner trying to escape and according to the rules you're allowed to shoot a prisoner that tries to escape
1: yep so there would have been a lot of people shooting yeah, like, yeah just bullets you know, carriages of German soldiers
0: and suddenly he falls over and everyone's like okay he's been hit but what's happened is the bullet hit the heel of his boot smashed the heel of his boot out causing him to fall to the ground but he's not but his, not his actual heel. Not his heel. Just the, He's the, just busted a plugger in his boot. So once he's fallen down, the German soldiers quickly, quickly capture him. Fortunately, the soldiers didn't really know what to do because they're not used to people just like brazenly trying to escape like this. So they don't shoot him straight away like most people would. Yeah. And it's interesting because the, the guard that first arrives who had that opportunity to shoot him, he got an absolute tonging up from his commanding officer <laughs> saying, why didn't you shoot him? Yeah, you were allowed then. Yeah, and now the moment's passed, and now we have to take him back in.
1: And all the other Kiwis and Brits would have just been loving it oh, as they were, Charlie's paraded they back. They
0: cheering on. Yeah. So Charlie gets loaded back into the truck, but this time he's put in with the truck full of SS men right? to keep, keep her uh, under lock and key. Yeah, <laughs> and once he gets back with his boys, who are just like, can't <laughs> believe that he's still alive. Yeah. There's this famous quote, and one of the guys says, mate, you're so lucky to be alive. And Upham gets through the and goes, Lucky, look what the bastards have done to my boot. <laughs> <laughs> his boot's got, like, smashed our heel. Classic. I just love that. It's eh? like he, he's not worried about his own well-being. It's just like, look at my yeah. boot. It's bloody.
1: Also, probably just to deflect away from, again, like, his bravery, he's just like, "Nah."
0: Yeah. Yeah. So these guys were taken to this place called Weisenberg, and there was about 100, 140 New Zealand officers as well as many hundreds of South Africans, Australians, and British prisoners. And this was going to be Upham's home for nearly a year. As soon as they got to Weisenberg, Upham went straight back into his escape plan. (laughs) Again, he just doesn't sit around this guy. Scheming. And one of Upham's favourite escape partners was this South African guy called Neville Holmes. And the interesting thing about Neville, Big Nev, is that he went on to be a Supreme Court judge in South Africa. Yeah, right. He was a lawyer before the war, so he had a lot of brains about him and they had a great time planning these escapes and what they started with was the classic let's dig a tunnel
1: yeah that is that's the old tried and trusted
0: yeah so many a good tunnel was dug <laughs> it's kind of just like in the movies you know all the classic prison movies yeah. everyone wants to dig a tunnel
1: emptying dirt out through your yeah, pant yeah. leg
0: yeah the old uh, Shawshank Redemption yeah but while they're while they're at this camp uh, one day Charlie mentioned and that planes start flying over And this was a massive moment for, I guess, the prisoners. Allied planes. These were Allied planes. And, you know, there was one, and then there was 10, and then there was hundreds. And it's the first time that they'd seen kind of visual progress of the Allies' effort in the war. In Germany. Yeah, they were flying into the heart of Germany. So obviously Germany was being bombed, which is, that's massive progress. Yeah. So it was a huge, like, uplifting experience for all the prisoners. It was pretty exciting. And it really raised morale because suddenly they realized, hey, we actually might win this war. We might get out of this prison. Alive. Yeah. Yep. So Charles had lots of fun pranking the guards. One of his favorite um, pranks was to to go up to the the wires and kind of pretend he was measuring everything. Yeah. And then he also liked to draw up all these maps (laughs) and the guards would come running thinking, oh, this guy's trying to escape, this guy's trying to escape. And then it would just be like a... A desert island map, or it'd be a map of Christ College, or it'd be this fake map, and he'd <laughs> just be like winding just around. Winding thinking him up. they had all these serious escape plans, but he was just like yeah. pranking them. Anyway, the tunnelling continued. What they would do is they there was like a prison band. So to cover the, the sound of digging, they would only do it when the, the orchestra and the band was playing. They'd be digging the holes.
1: Just like the thunder in Shawshank? Yep,
0: just like the thunder. And like Shawshank, the The hardest thing with tunnelling is what do you do with all the soil? Mm. To dig a tunnel, you're taking a lot of dirt out. What do you do with it? In Shawshank Redemption, they just took it out in their pockets and dropped it in the yard. But Upham and the boys decided, we're going to jam it in some some cupboards. (laughs) We're going to hide our soil in these cupboards. Had they not seen the Shawshank Redemption? Clearly they hadn't, (laughs) which was fine. It was fine until one day, and it was actually the day that they were ready to escape. The tunnel had been finished and the cupboards were full of dirt, and no one had noticed. They were going to be escaping down that tunnel that day. And then suddenly, a German workman arrives in their their hut where the tunnel is, and he decides he's going to fix the fireplace. And this is a job that's been kind of overdue for months. It's been damaged for months. But today's the day that he decides to uh, come in and fix it. As luck would have it. And unfortunately, the cupboard is in the way of him getting to the fireplace. So (laughs) the workman goes to move the cupboard, and he goes to lift it up and it doesn't move, and he's really confused because it's just a cupboard that looks really light, and for some reason he couldn't move it. So all the boys get in there to try and <laughs> move this cupboard and try and make out that there's nothing to, nothing...
1: It's super easy to move. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they can't even move it because it's full of soil. It's got like a tonne of soil in it. And then um, the commandant of the camp, which his name is Hauptmann Knapp, he, uh, he comes in and he opens the wardrobe only to find a massive <laughs> amount of soil <laughs> Just a worm farm, sir. And all it says in the book is it had been a beautiful tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> escape plans dashed out. Oh, just, you know, the day before they were going to escape, the day of the big escape day, and it fails.
1: Man, sliding doors, it's just crazy how many things just hinge on luck and oh. circumstance.
0: Uh, and Upham was pretty, in dis- he was in despair over that. Like, they put so much effort into these tunnel tunnels, and every time it had been foiled because it just how do you hide that you're building a tunnel? Yeah. yeah. Even your clothes just getting so dirty from digging. How do you hide that? Yeah. So he decided to try a new strategy. So it's time to try and go over the wire. So the fence, the fence around the prisoner of war camp was like a big wire, as you see in all the movies. So Upham decided, first thing is, let's get some wire cutters. We'll cut ourselves a nice little hole. So they managed to get a hold of some wire cutters, and then they're like, okay, where do you get that from? I don't know. Popped down to my attenders. <laughs> there's, there's Some kind of like... Isle 75? Yeah, someone made him a cake with some wire cutters in it, maybe. <laughs> and uh, they waited until there was an air raid. Obviously, you know, the Allied planes are flying over and suddenly machine guns are shooting at it. And there's, mm. there's sirens going off. There's a lot of noise. This yep. is the time to do your, your break. So Charles and Big Nev, the South African judge, they, they sneak out. And they, get, they sneak out and they get to the fence, middle of the night, get to the fence with the wire cutters. And... Uh, upham has got them, and he's ready to cut the wire, and he squeezes the wire cutters, and then there's this massive ping as the like the wire just snaps, and uh, it was really loud. And Charles is like, "Oh hell, that's going to wake them up." And unfortunately, for some reason, the ear raid was kind of a false alarm, so all the sirens had stopped, all the guns had stopped, and there was basically perfect timing. No noise at all. <laughs> Quick start so of the there was band. This massive ping of the wire being cut. Yeah. And uh, suddenly, all the lights in the prison just went on <laughs> and uh, there's just floodlights drenching drenching the prison and yeah. they're just like we've got to get out of here <laughs> somehow they managed to weasel their way back to the hut without getting getting caught on that occasion but um, their tail was between their legs yeah and later on the next day the, the guards find the wire that's been cut and uh, the boys are in for a bit of solitary confinement <laughs> which is nothing new for Charles Upham he was in and out of the punishment cells yeah so that that plan failed time for the next one so upham's kind of one day he's just out in the yard and he's just watching the guards he's trying like figuring out you know where are they looking how often is are they looking at this area etc and he realizes there's 45 seconds where there's a gap in the fence that isn't being looked at the guards are facing the other way and he thinks 45 seconds I can get through this I can do that (laughs) yeah piece of cake
1: (laughs) reminds me of the old commandos games I used to play where you could see the cone of vision and the guards and you'd wait for the moment and then
0: he's playing a real life game of commandos (laughs) and he just decides look I'm going to give this a crack and it's the middle of the day a wire break in broad daylight like
1: no one would dare
0: yeah that's the thing is that no one's expecting it it's just too brazen everyone's like the guards are pretty casual switched off yeah yeah so he, he tells the other guys, hey, can you guys run a diversion while I just sneak out here? You distract the guards. So they go and start a like, casual punch-up, have a oh, fight. Yeah. You know, a little scrap. Yep. Distracts <laughs> the guards. And he, as soon as the guards are like, not looking, he starts climbing the fence. And he gets up, and he gets up, and he gets, he gets to the top, and he knows he's got to jump over the barbed wire. So he kind of puts his foot on the wire and gets ready to jump. And just as he's about to jump, the staple holding the wire pings out. And suddenly, that wire that he's standing on goes slack and he loses all his kind of momentum. He jumps, he doesn't clear the wire. He pretty much lands straight into the barbed wire. It's like, it's a bit like the Truman show.
1: Like with the director who's just constantly, you know, like there'll be a Truman tries to escape over the bridge and there's a nuclear meltdown or something happens every time. Like someone's pulling these strings.
0: It does seem like it's some kind of movie. Yeah. And anyway, he's in the barbed wire and he's completely tangled. He's trying to escape but he's, the more he moves the more tangled up he It's all in his, caught in his jacket and it's his, the barbed wire's cutting into his skin and things like that. Yeah. And eventually he realises he's completely stuck. Now that the guards see him because he's making such a ruckus, the alarm goes on people start running. And the first guard arrives and he's really angry he's, he pulls out his pistol and he's shouting in German he's shouting that he's going to finish off the prisoner so he gets his gun ready and uh, just as he does this, Upham kind of pulls out a ciggy. <laughs> he pulls out his lighter. Quit little dart. And lights up a smoke. And the guard just is so confused <laughs> as to what is going on here. This, he's making no effort to kind of like put his hands up or like yeah. stop me from shooting. He's just having a cigarette. Doesn't even the, look worried. The, like the guard, who's a corporal, is, is so confused. And he kind of hesitates. He doesn't know what to do.
1: I feel like if you're yelling at someone that you're going to shoot them instead of shooting them, though, you're probably not going to shoot them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like, and uh, Upham, Upham's heard yelling to the uh, his, his boys, his other prisoners. He says, I refuse to be shot by a bloody corporal. Tell him to bring an officer. <laughs> as casual as you like, he's just sucking on a dart the city and just saying, If you've got to shoot me, I want someone of a higher rank. Yeah. So at this stage, the, the prison uh, c- commandant arrives, old. Hauptmann Knapp. He's kind of like a big podgy fellow. I imagine him to be like the German version of the fat conductor from yeah, Thomas yeah, right. and the Tank Engine. Waddles over. And he comes on up. Voiced by Ringo Starr. Yeah. <laughs> and rather than pulling out a gun, he pulls out a camera. And he takes three photos of and up, up stuck in the barbed wire... Like smoking a ciggy. Like he's just stuck in a hammock. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, man. Yeah, that photo's amazing. You can yeah. look, just look it up, look it up online. So it's yeah. Charles Upham. Make
0: sure you, you check it out because it's the most amazing amazing photo. If, I mean, if that's not a profile pic, I don't know what is. Yeah. Got to be heavy with he that. He
1: would that all over his profile.
0: So, yeah. So Upham, you know, he gets taken out of the barbed wire and back to the punishment cells. But you might be wondering why he hasn't been shot yet. And, uh... Helman Knapp actually had a bit of an admiration for the New Zealander. That comes from Upham's kind of refusal to submit. Yeah. Like a lot of the Germans were just so impressed by this guy that is such a decorated soldier yeah, and just so brave that no one really wanted to just shoot him.
1: Yeah. 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 And it's you're right, it's like that moment of hesitation and then it's done. You can't do it
0: anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So Upham got 30 days solitary confinement for that. Fair enough. Once he came out, there was a guard that was dedicated to watching him at all times <laughs> with his machine gun. Man marking. So as opposed to like the guards scanning the whole yeah. prison, there's one person dedicated to just watching <laughs> Charles up. Him. It's like
1: 30 centimetres behind him at all times.
0: This didn't stop Charles though. Of course not. <laughs> one day when the gates were open, he, he made an absolute run for it just out, out the main gates. Luckily the guy that was dedicated to watching him, he didn't pull the trigger either because he could see outside the gate. There was a... German patrol coming so he was like ah he's going to get caught <laughs> so he just watched it unfold <laughs> watched him run into the Ford pack <laughs> so that basically that that got nowhere but all of these constant escape attempts kind of forced a bit of a rethink the Germans started to get a bit sick of it eh? they were like okay yeah. and they decided look there's only one place for this kind of guy and it's a place called Colditz Castle uh-huh. you heard of that?
1: yeah I've played Wolfenstein
0: yeah it was known as the the most unescapable prison, and it was a place where you send your high value prisoners. Yeah, basically, it was built in like the 12th century. It's now a massive uh, tourist attraction. Yeah, it's very famous. It's been immortalized in many books and even a board game. I think it was called Escape from Colditz.
1: Okay, it's an epic looking building. Yeah, like, it's like, like, like it.
0: I think it's in Saxony or something like that, part of Germany.
1: It's the kind of research we should probably yeah. do beforehand. But say so, so you should. Yeah. Well, it's never stopped us before? If, you, <laughs> if you're in Germany.
0: <laughs> Go check it out. But anyway, they're like, okay, we need to send him here because if he wants to escape, he'll never be able to escape from that place. Yeah. So they chuck him on a train. And what they know from up him is he loves loves an escape. So they give him (laughs) three guards. But the guards that are looking after him are like these old dudes. But they're kind of old, but this is the most important job they've ever had in their life. So they're taking this job of guarding Charles Upham very, very seriously. High value client. And they're kind of stoked that they get to look after him because it's a big, important job. Yeah. So they're on the train. One of these uh, soldiers, he nicks his name as Blue Nose. I don't know why. Was his nose blue? Maybe. Maybe, (laughs) but how does his nose go blue? Maybe he's an alcoholic. But anyway, Upham's just like, okay, well, this seems like a reasonably good chance to escape on this train (laughs) on a speeding train with three guys I've got three men watching me (laughs) how could I possibly escape from this so he thinks right maybe if I just sneak off to the toilet so he says you know I need to go to the toilet Blue Nose the guard gets up walks him to the toilet he sits outside the toilet the door closes up gets in there so he's
1: allowed in the toilet on his own he's allowed in the toilet on his own rookie error
0: what are you doing Blue Nose classic classic move there's this tiny little window which seems silly, but you know, he's on the train. Upham kind of wraps his hand in like clothing, waits until there's lots of noise, smashes the window. the The train's going full noise, like mm. it's it's rocketing it's along on. there, and he's just looking outside. It's the middle of the night. It's dark. He can see the ground whizzing past, and Upham's like, "Okay, well, this is my one chance. Either I jump out here or I stay with stay with one Blue shot. Nose and the boys. One opportunity." And he decides. Let's give it a crack. Yeah. So he squeezes his way just fitting through this window and basically wriggles his way out and just falls off the train, (laughs) smashes himself on the ground and knocks himself out.
1: Well, I mean, that's probably not too bad, all things considered. I remember him talking about it years later, and he said that that was the one time that he felt that he made like an uncalculated risk decision. Like he weighed it all up and just couldn't, couldn't know if it was the right thing or not and nearly like literally every other time he went no that's not the right thing to do except for this one time yeah i mean where he, had, he just leapt into
0: nothingness he had no idea if he was going to survive or not yeah did see it knocks himself out lands on the railway line wakes up the train's gone mhm sweet see your blue nose <laughs> maybe i've got away with this Goral army. wakes up And just kind of like starts walking in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. He's got no idea what he's doing, and he's got no real chance. He can't speak German. He's got no false papers. He's got no maps. He's got no money. (laughs) I mean, what is he going to do? But he's like, oh, might as well give it a crack. Yeah, why not? What else are
1: you going to do? Hang out with Blue Nose?
0: (laughs) So he starts walking in the opposite direction to the train. And as he's walking, he kind of notices someone way off in the distance on the railway track walking behind him. And he's kind of like, oh. Is that someone looking for me? Maybe, maybe not. So he keeps walking, and he's like, "Okay, I'm going to have to do something about this." So he's walking along, and he sees a bunch of like trees coming up on the right. These, like a these, forest. Yeah, these woods, and he's <laughs> like, "Sweet, I can maybe run off into here." But he gets to the woods, and he realizes that they're like a plantation, so they're all planted in lines, and it's like, "Oh, oh big
1: corridors." That is
0: not ideal for hiding. Yeah. So he's like, "Well, I've got to take my chances." He kind of bolts off into the trees finds one that's got like a real nice trunk and stuff and he buries himself in some leaves. And he decides I'm just gonna have a wee sleep here. Oh yeah, a little kip. Knocks out an eight hour sleep. Oh yeah. <laughs> Solid effort. That is a power move if ever I if ever I have <laughs> just I'm just gonna take a nap yeah. while half of Germany is looking for me. <laughs> so anyway, he wakes up and he's like real sore and stiff. And straight away he realizes Something's not right here,
1: Spidey sense is tingling
0: yeah, and he he just notices there's soldiers everywhere they're all around the woods, and they're walking up and down these corridors, and very soon they're going to be in they're going to be in his corridor, and then he kind of like makes his way up, and then a soldier spots him,
1: so how did they know he was there?
0: I guess the guy walking down the, the, the oh, train that tracks. the wa- was looking for him yeah right yeah, yeah, that was Bloody a sol- blue nose that was a soldier <laughs> <laughs> and uh so the bullets start flying once again, and Upham refuses, refuses to put his hands up. Refuses to be shot. So rather rather than being shot or putting his hands up, he just sits down. Oh, yeah? He just sits down on the ground. Power move number two. <laughs> so the guards run up to him, and obviously, again, they don't really know what to do. And uh, who's there? Good old Blue Nose. He's back. Oh, Blue Nose was there. He, he was there, yeah. <laughs> and Upham thought he was going to get a hiding. He yeah. thought he was going to get it like you know, a butt of the rifle to this head. Yeah it turns out Blue Nose was full of concern and he was he was like fussing over him making sure he was okay and Blue Nose was just stoked what? he, he was so happy to have found his you know the, the the most important prisoner he's got him back
1: right so Blue Nose was probably going to face a firing squad if probably if Charlie wasn't recaptured
0: and and finding him and bringing him back is like one of the greatest days in the old boy's life yeah right Yes, okay. his prize prisoner has been recaptured yeah so Upham was at liberty for like 12 hours. He spent 12 Eight hours. Eight of which <laughs> he was sleeping. <laughs> sleeping. <laughs> so that was a pretty good crack. Yeah. But Blue Nose has got his man. Yeah. And they're back on the train. So this time, this time... Back to This time, back to Colditz. This time they're not taking any chances, so they handcuff Charlie to the guards. I
1: mean, handcuff him the first
0: time. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it seems like something out of a cartoon. Have they him, not read it? his fact file? Oh, <laughs> mate. He loves an escape. So finally he gets to Colditz. And um, th- he realises straight away that this place is essentially escape-proof. You know, the mm. walls are seven feet thick. The buildings are five-storey high. Th- seven feet thick? In places, not always, but right. yeah, there's bits. You know, it was built in the 12th century as an actual castle for war. Yeah. And there's a tiny little courtyard, and there's very rigid discipline. Like, they're running this with an iron fist. Yeah. Some, of the, other, some of the other places are a bit more casual. This is... Pretty strict. People did escape from Colditz, though, right? They did escape, yep, yep, before Charlie got there. Okay. And then I think any kind of, like, ways of escaping had been sealed up. Yeah. They'd learned from those, those places. Well, we're a long way through now, right? What are we, 1944 still? Yeah, we're getting into 1944. So it's kind of getting towards the end of the war. Um, Spoiler and, alert. And what you've got to remember is that uh, these kind of castles, they're real beautiful, but mm. freezing cold oh yeah there's no heat pumps in there
1: Saxony or wherever it is they're not running they're not
0: running underfloor heating no so in winter it's so cold so a lot of the prisoners are pretty sick pretty you know under the weather as you would be trying to survive in a prison like that you'd be mentally under the weather yeah so it was those kind of winters were taking their toll on the occupants lots of sickness and the conditions were pretty rough especially because there's a lot of pressure on Germany now they were starting to lose the war so they were kind of mm. treating prisoners a lot a lot worse than yeah. earlier in the war.
1: You imagine their food rations were probably cut a bit and yep. everything would have just gone to the, their desperate scramble mm. to survive.
0: Yeah. So Upham arrives and there's already a, a few New Zealanders at Colditz. Sure. Yep. There's uh, Fred Moody, who's a New Zealand medical officer. He was in there as well as a few orderlies, a dentist. Cedric Bass and Ben McLean, a couple of Maori orderlies were there as well. And um, Fred was in charge of kind of like welcoming as much as you can Charles hmm. to Colditz and making sure he's okay. As soon as Upham arrives, he asks, Now tell me, Fred, what's the story about escaping? <laughs> Straight away. <laughs> yeah. How do we do this? How do we get out of here? And yeah. he's, he's told about Mike Sinclair, who was all about giving it a crack. And basically, Mike had a good, good crack at it and he was shot dead just over the wire. Okay. The last person that tried, there's their body over there. Right. So, Arpham realises, you know, there's no real chance of getting out here. It's not like Medina and all these other places.
1: Yeah. Everything's been sealed up. This is the last stop for those serial escapists. So, yeah, there are no
0: second chances. And the misery of Colditz kind of seemed to dampen, like, Charles' vibrant character. He became kind of morose, unresponsive. Hmm. He was grumpy, as you would be. Because he did not like sitting around. Yeah. And he just has been forced to sit in this old castle.
1: Reading Samford's book, it seems like Charlie was prone to depression, I think. Like he would slip into really dark places yeah. for a while. Yeah,
0: And he didn't talk about his exploits at all while he was in cold. It's people, lots, of, lots of the other prisoners want, wanted to know, because they knew he was famous. They knew he'd got the VC, but he just wouldn't talk about it. He, he just refused. Uh, another prisoner, Dick Howard, eventually to try and cheer Charles up, taught him how to cook. Oh, yeah. As as you do. Yeah. And he actually became quite an accomplished chef oh, in prison. Shut Charlie. That's about all you can do, really. Well, I mean, there's not much else you can do. Walk around and cook. And food is probably like one of the few... Pleasures. Yeah, you yeah. can have. Yeah, so there wasn't really much to talk about within Charles Up and while he was at Colditz. He kind of was pretty grumpy. But he was still at his defiant best. Mm. He still loved to kind of not follow orders and wind up guards when he could yep. there was one time that he was refusing to do the name calling you know you had to do the prison kind roll of thing. call yeah and the guard came up to him and slapped him across the face and Charles was furious and was probably about to punch this guy yeah this guy's head in but he's never been disrespected like that everyone all the other prisoners had to hold him back because yeah. he was about to unleash on that prison guard and that was a good thing they held him back, because that probably would have ended in yeah, pretty ended. serious. <laughs> he ended the story right there. Yeah. So they held him back. But there was another incident where uh, you know, a number of men were asked to show their identity discs, which they all did, except for Upham, who threw his on the ground in front of the officer. <laughs> he was ordered to pick it up, but he just said, nah, pick all it right. up yourself, yeah. and then gave a defiant silence. The German officer, pretty angry, pulled out his revolver and... Upham could tell he wasn't mucking around, this officer. Yeah, so eventually, its guards a psycho. after about 20 seconds of just staring him down, mm. he reached down, picked up his disc, and gave it to him. Yeah. He kind of knew how to just go all the way to the line without crossing it. I think that's the one moment where he's come back from complete stubbornness. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, winter drags on, and then 1945 comes around. And basically, by this stage, I don't know if you know, but Germany was losing the war. Yep. And the Allies were advancing on Germany on land.
1: You, yep.
0: So no one really knew what was going to happen with the prison because they, they, they knew there was high-value prisoners here and were the Germans going to make their last stand and take these hostages, these prisoners, high-value targets, away into the mountains and try and negotiate with them. So everyone was starting to get a bit worried. You mean like... Upham? Was he one? Yeah, but actually in the, in the prison there was other high-value targets. For example, Winston Churchill's nephew, who was called Giles Romilly. Oh, right. He was there. Nephew of King George was there, George Lascelles. There were some prominent French and Polish ger- generals. And there was also the son of the United States ambassador to Britain. He was in there as well. So there's some big names. In and the, and Charles the Upham. All Blacks. <laughs> and a bunch of All Blacks and Charles the Upham. The New Zealand First 15. Yeah. So no one really knew how this was going to play out. On the 10th of April 1945, the war on land came within an earshot of Kolditz. They could actually hear the hmm. fighting going on, which must have been exciting stuff. Oh, man. Suddenly this, this news drifted up that in the village where the castle was, an SS division had moved in and murdered the remnants of a Jewish working gang that was prisoners. they just gone and murdered them. Man, one final... So... War crime. Everyone's freaking out, like, is this what they're just going to start doing to prison? Are they just going to come and shoot us all? Yeah. Um, and they're really worried that they're just going to come and get murdered, especially by the like, fanatical SS or some fanatical Nazis trying to make their last stand.
1: Imagine that, being so afraid you wouldn't get to commit genocide anymore. <laughs> so just sneaking one
0: little, last little one in there. Yeah, it's crazy. Basically, the prisoners at Colditz said to the commandant, the person in charge, that, look. If you do anything stupid, if you try and move us, if you try and execute us, we're going we're gonna to resist. And it will also, you know, the bloodshed's going to be on you. Anyone that dies, us, you guys, it's on you as hmm. making this call. And the commandant understands, you know, defeat's inevitable. So as he, as he basically hears the American tanks, the next day, Sunday, American tanks are seen in the streets of the village, yep. and some soldiers walk up and through the gates of Coldits. The Germans line up in formal surrender, and the British officers are really waiting for waiting to be freed. So essentially, all the prisoners are now free. Imagine that. Imagine, yeah, being those American soldiers too,
1: walking into that castle, just walking in, and the enemy surrendering to you. And oh, the, just but the, you'd, you imagine the look in the eyes of like Charlie and an, oh, the prisoners.
0: You've been in that castle for a couple of years, three, four, so for some of those guys. Yeah, horrible conditions. Yeah, and suddenly you, you're free. Yeah, what so, would you even do? Well, I'll tell you what Charlie did. Oh, yeah, good stuff. He went straight down to the, into the village yeah. and then walked up to the headquarters of the Americans and said, how do I sign back up? I'm keen to get back out on the <laughs> battlefield. <laughs> with, and, with the Americans. Yeah, the Americans are like, sweet. Yeah. Yeah, great. It gives them a bunch of stuff. It gives them an American combat uniform. Gives them a helmet. Gives them a Tommy gun. A couple of grenades. <laughs> a compass. A revolver. So he's all all uniformed up and ready to go straight back into war with the the Americans. So he's with the Americans for four days, waiting for orders. And he was, like, pretty excited. He's got his grenades there, ready to go, his hands on the (laughs) thing.
1: Tensioned like a spring.
0: And then some orders come through from the British saying, Under no circumstances are released POWs to be permitted to join active service units, unofficially or otherwise. POWs are to be evacuated without exception.
1: Gutted. Party poopers, gutted. <laughs> Old stick in the mud. So
0: all the prisoners had to be evacuated. He couldn't just join the yeah, join the fight. So reluctantly, he had to go back to back to the UK. That's a pretty great
1: order, though. You know. Oh yeah, to to look after them. And
0: yeah, that's yeah, made made sense. Didn't it? Not, yeah, I get not it. To Charles up. I see where they're coming from. So well, there was a, like a flood of prisoners just going towards England to be evacuated. Like 9,000 New Zealanders were released from prison. Wow. So once he got to England, Upham obviously very keen to meet up with Molly. Oh, yeah, Molly McTamney. This this woman that, you know, he was engaged to a long time ago. Yeah. Hadn't seen her in, I don't know, five? Six years. Six years? Yeah. It's like, okay, let's meet up. Yeah, she left before the outbreak of the war and... So she was, she was in England So he's like Sweet I'm in England now I'll catch up with my missus That I haven't seen in six years yeah. So he, he goes to find her And guess what he finds out
1: She's pregnant No With Kippenberger's child No
0: She's in Germany Oh. <laughs> how Wasn't ir- he just in Germany Yeah How ironic is that He's just come from Germany Yeah right Finds out she's gone there Because she's working for the Red Cross Okay So he, he messages her Somehow I don't know how it works Whatsapp <laughs> Yeah Sends her a quick text message to say, look, I'm in England. You need to get out of Germany ASAP. It's not safe over there. Yeah. So she manages to make her way uh, back to England, and they catch up in the weekend. So that's nice. Yeah, they do. And then uh, he gets a letter from from the king saying, do you want to come round to my place, and I'll pin that medal come on your chest. <laughs> yeah. So off he is to Buckingham Palace. Nice one. To meet the king. King George pins the, the VC on uh, Upham's tunic. Yeah. And he says, he says to Upham, Tell me what you've been doing since you've arrived in London. Upham just gives him a classic Kiwi answer. Mostly eating. (laughs) (laughs) Just classic
1: Kiwi banter. Yeah, it just tells him literally, I've been eating.
0: After meeting with the king, he was walking back through the park. And then another classic Charles Upham moment happens. There's this old school brigadier, old school uh, British officer. And Upham walks right past him. And this old school brigadier is a bit upset and he says to him, Don't you colonials salute your senior officers any longer, he demands. And Charles Upham kind of restrains his temper and he says quietly, Oh, I'm sorry, sir. I didn't mean to be disrespectful. I didn't see you approaching. I would have saluted you if I'd seen you, of course. But uh, actually, I've just come from the palace. and I was yarning with the king and he didn't seem that fussy about saluting and all that.
1: Power move three.
0: Oh, mate.
1: <laughs> I remember reading, too. Yeah, the, the guy saw the, the VC on his chest at that point and he just sort of stammered and... Walked
0: off. Just put the old guy in his Because that's uh, that's one place. of the things about
1: the VC is, regardless of what your rank is, if someone's got the VC, it's expected that you salute them. Like, yeah. it's not written into the citation of the award, but it's it's pretty common practice. So yeah, even if you're a private, some general or admiral's still supposed to salute
0: you. Yeah, nice. Once he's in England, he also is very keen to get back into action. So he signs up for the occupation force to be part of the police because he's got a few scores that he'd like to settle. Oh, yeah. But once again, the rule is that ex just can't, can't sign up and he was declined. Right. So they basically said, no, you've done your time, you've done your service.
1: He's been saved from himself quite a few times throughout the story.
0: <laughs> yeah. So on the 20th of June, 1945, Charles and Molly finally get married at Barton-on-Sea, Hampshire. There were a few people present, very, very low key, and that's what he wanted. Yeah. And now it was finally time to, to make sweet... Oh, I was just going to say head to New Zealand. Oh, yeah, go home. Yeah, let's okay. keep it tidy. Sorry about that. You know so, I like. <laughs> so there were ships going to New Zealand all the time. Soldiers were finally getting taken home. It was the end of the war. And Charles was posted to one of the ships. But the shipping clerks said, you know, sorry, wives aren't allowed on this. They're going to have to wait for, like, civilian transport. So Charles was obviously a wee bit upset, but he's like, oh. Fair enough. Rules okay. the rules. That's the rule. And he didn't want to be any more special, so he didn't mention the fact that he's got a VC. And... Yeah, because he could have thrown his weight around, I suppose. Yeah. But that wasn't Charlie. He gets on the ship, realises that there's a few other wives on there, and <laughs> it's like, oh, I could have just done something here. Oh, man. And uh, so they were separated once more. You know, they just got married and now they're separate again. Can't you be angry? But then everyone found out, obviously, oh, this is Charles Upham and his wife back there. Mm. So they were like, okay, we can organise a plane for, um, for Molly to, you know, meet him in New Zealand. So they do that, but Molly's like, no, 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 I don't want to be treated any, any different to anyone else. I will go home on a civilian transport. God, like no every, wonder he loved her. Every other wife. So both Charles and Molly didn't want special treatment. Two peas in a pod. So on 2nd of September, 1945... Charles steps ashore at Littleton and he faces a wave of public celebration, which he hates. No, oh, he would have loved that. <laughs> yeah. And he gets back to his old living room at 32 Gloucester Street. He, last time he'd seen that was 1939. Yeah, six, six years, years ago. ago. Yeah. Imagine going away, probably thinking you're going to war for three months, six months. Yeah. Go away for six years and come back to your house.
1: Whoops, I left the oven on. I walked into my classroom from three years ago the other day, yes, and it felt weird walking back in there. Yeah, nice. Probably similar (laughs) to how Charlie felt. You know, but it's like... Not quite the same. It's one of those moments, though, where everything's different. Like, so much has happened in your life, and yet you walk into there, and like it was the same sofa that he sat down (laughs) on.
0: And it's like, how can
1: everything still be the same when
0: all that stuff's That must have been so hard for soldiers coming back. Yeah. Anyway, I'm going to pass it over to you to talk about what happens next in the life of Charles Upper
1: can do. So you mentioned Charlie getting home and walking back into that living room and it was a bit of a struggle, I think, like for Charlie but for all of the other soldiers too who came back because he had to get to know his family again and his friends. Yes. Because obviously the soldiers came back, different people. and
0: Oh, yeah. How it, could you be the same? You can't.
1: Yeah. It would be impossible to just slip into a little casual chit-chat, you know. So as part of breaking the ice, Charlie gives... His family presents he gives his mum a scarf oh, and he nice. gets his dad a little pipe but he's got one other gift for his mum he hands her a little box and she opens it slowly and inside she sees the victoria cross oh that's nice and sanford writes that that's like possibly the only time and i think this was charlie's admission where he felt a glimmer of pride was when his mum saw that and you know, she was proud of him and more than anything was grateful to have him back.
0: Probably didn't explain what he got it for. It's just like, no. Oh, here's this middle I found. He,
1: yeah, he gave them no details. Like even to Molly in his letters and in talking to her, he never went into the details about what happened. Yeah. But he'd talk for ages about what his men had done. Like, he'd talk about their exploits forever. So he's back home and... It wasn't long before the press had just all over him like vultures. Yeah. And he declined a bunch of interviews, but finally agreed to write a couple of columns about his impressions of life in a POW camp. And he boasted, not about himself, but he was proud of his nation, that all Kiwi soldiers, quote, invariably got the enemy down by a mixture of ridicule and defiance. <laughs> so he loved that, and he characterized that Kiwi spirit. Just, just pranking. Yeah, in the Kiwi camp, just by constantly flipping the bird and just never giving in to that German domination. Yeah. On the 10th of September, the city of Christchurch, they rally around their favourite son. Huge. He gets the civic reception, and Charlie's terrified.
0: Cathedral Square?
1: Who knows? Probably. <laughs> his voice is shaking, though. You know, he's, this is like his worst nightmare. Yeah. So he's shaking. He, he gets up to speak. and classic Charlie, he just deflects all of the attention away from himself. He says, I should like to point out again that this honour is really due to the division as a whole. I am only one unit in the division. There were thousands of better soldiers than I was. And he then requested that those people who had been less fortunate than himself, that they get shown the respect and assistance that they deserved. And he finishes them with an absolute mic drop. And I think this point is a pretty good illustration of how Charlie would feel about the state of the world in 2024. He concluded his speech by saying, if we are going to make all this worthwhile, we have got to get rid of want and misery in other parts of the world. Before this war, the world's riches were pretty badly distributed, and although they changed hands considerably during the war, they seemed to do so in big lumps. So, oh, you know, he's... No wonder he hated the Nazis, first of all. Yeah. It's like deep down he seems to be a bit of a socialist. Yeah, He's just revealed his commie colours. Um, you know, but that idea of equity for everybody else and fair distribution, and yeah. you know, that just speaks to his character, I think. So if you remember way back when, I mentioned that Burroughs went to Kippenberger, the time that Charlie sort of blew up at him about having to dig trenches for no reason, and Burroughs told him he was in the wrong spot. Well, Burroughs went on to see Kippenberger in Inglis and said that Charlie had to get another VC for his actions at Minkar Well, as the war dragged on, Charlie gets lost, obviously, as a POW, and all the evidence that Burroughs collected, because you need evidence, yeah. you know, yeah. for a VC to be awarded, they're not given out lightly. And that, just a big stack of files detailing Charlie's actions, they sat in the war office. And when Charlie returns to New Zealand, Inglis immediately goes to Freiburg, who's the guy who got a bit of shrapnel in his neck. Yes. And he in turn went to the army council and they reviewed the files. So it took basically no time at all and they send a draft citation off to Buckingham Palace to be reviewed by the big dog, big King George the, the sixth.
0: No, his mate. Yeah, his mate
1: at this point. And Kippenberger, who's now a major general... He's actually the highest-ranking Kiwi officer in England. He's walking along the street when a car pulls up and he finds himself summoned to the king's study. And the king asks him, "'I've spent an hour going through these new papers about Upham. "'I suppose you know he has been recommended for a bar to the Victoria Cross. "'It would be very unusual indeed. "'Tell me, Kippenberger, what do you think of Upham yourself? "'Does he deserve it?' Kippenberger apparently replied by saying, "'In my respectful opinion, sir, Upham won the VC several times over.' So Upham receives a telegram telling him of this honour and it's a direct message of congratulations from the New Zealand Prime Minister. And since the inception of the Victoria Cross, 1856, Charles Upham is, it's a record to this day, the only combat soldier to receive the award twice. Yes. He was the only person to receive two Victoria Crosses during the entire Second World War and for that reason he's often described as the most decorated Commonwealth soldier of that entire conflict of World War Two.
0: Yeah, I think there was two other people that got it twice, but they weren't they weren't combat, combat soldiers. Yeah, yeah.
1: One, well, they were both doctors. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he actually got that telegram telling him that he got the second VC as he was sitting for a portrait. So it was commissioned and it was supposed to hang in Christ's College. And so the artist who's painting it, Charlie, comes in in the morning. He's basically dragged there by his mum because yeah. the idea of sitting there for a portrait celebrating him. Horrible. It's a poison <laughs> to Charlie.
0: That's old school selfie, eh? Yeah,
1: pretty much. It apparently took six weeks. So he's dragged in there by his mum. And the artist says, after he gets the telegram, he's like, Charlie, this morning I found it quite easy to paint you. You had this confident look and, you know, you seemed you were sitting upright. You got that message and you've slumped and I can just barely a mess see a massive frown on his face. <laughs> yeah, he's just in the dumps. Yeah. And he's like, what was on that telegram? Charlie doesn't tell him, but I think the phone rings later. People are desperate to get in touch with him. And the artist eventually learns what was on it, that he's just been told he's getting his second VC. Or, <laughs> he's just
0: so dark. And he's just
1: down in the dumps about it. I you know, can't he believe they're giving me it. another
0: one. Stop it. Well,
1: he just knew that everything was about to get worse for him. Yeah. Like, there'd be more attention, more photographs. Oh, especially
0: being the only guy to get two. Yeah. I mean, before that, it'd been like, okay, I'm one of... A few other people, they've got a VC, but now yeah. I'm like the only person. I'm the
1: only one. I'm up on a pedestal now, the only one ever. Uh. So, yeah, more fancy ceremonies. But probably the worst thing of all was the admiration that he knew was going to come because yeah. he, he just could not handle people looking at him and admiring him. Yeah. He just felt so uncomfortable. He hated it so much. Apparently, like years later, well after the war and after all of this had sort of calmed down, he was asked who he hated more, the news media or the Germans. And his reply was, it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. <laughs> and, like, we know the hatred he held for the yeah. Germans. Yeah. There's sto- and we don't know whether this is true, but there are stories about him never allowing German vehicles onto his farm.
0: Yeah. You know, yeah after yeah, that's the war. Throwing- at least he's not throwing grenades at the journalists. That's
1: true, yeah. He's probably got a sack there ready, though, if he needs it. So the night, though, that he gets that telegram, following confirmation that he's going to get that bar to his VC... In what should have been the safety of his own home, Charlie's confronted with this avalanche of telegrams and the telephone's ringing off the hook and there's people in the front hall, reporters, a crowd of people outside. Charlie locks himself in the bathroom. He finally manages to slip out quietly to a friend's house and his mate, Peter, tries to explain it to him and he's just saying, you know, you should be proud of this. Anyone else would be proud of what you've achieved and Charlie just can't get it. Yeah. He finally cracks. He's like on the verge of tears, shaking his head, and he says, according to Peter, he said, it's wrong, Peter, it's wrong. They shouldn't give it to me. What about all the others? We all did exactly the same things. Why pick on me? It just makes me a bloody fool. And I really, like, I can, not that I can put myself in his position, obviously, but I feel for him here because... Oh, yeah, he genuinely hated it, eh? Yeah, it's like he's got a combination of guilt and shame, like he couldn't save everyone.
0: It's, it's the whole thing, it's like they all broke out. Yeah. You know, they were he was leading it but there's a bunch of other people there so why are they yeah singling him out there were
1: people equally brave who didn't survive you know yeah. or whose actions weren't noticed and didn't make it into an official citation and yeah but it's, it's almost as well like there's a real disconnect between him and the rest of the world because it really seems like he didn't understand that he'd done anything exceptional yeah. it's like his he was so honest and generous and just willing to give everything for that cause yeah. It's like he didn't understand that other people aren't like that. Yeah. That there's that selfishness and, you know, all of that stuff, all of those flaws of people. It's like Charlie didn't have a lot of that, and so he just he, he literally didn't get it. And, you know, his inability to understand that, I think, made him feel a bit silly Yeah, and, like, embarrassed. But, you know, the letters are streaming in. Charlie feels obliged to respond to every single one of them personally. And it's funny, the length of his reply it was kind of like inversely proportional to how well he, he knew the person so one of his old mates ian reed sent him a letter and he received this reply from charlie dear ian thanks for your note a lot of bloody nonsense yours charles <laughs> <laughs> i like that just yeah with his mates he's just classic charlie but then to children and to other people he would write these long letters and yeah. he wrote letters to um, you know the widows and mothers of soldiers who had died and he was He went at great lengths to explain how incredibly brave they were. So in a particularly fancy function, Charlie further demonstrated his dedication to everyone except himself. And he was speaking on behalf of other winners of the VC. And Charlie called on every New Zealander to help those men who were, you know, like we said before, just as brave as him, but less lucky. He said they're gonna need homes, furniture, jobs. And he asked the public to provide those people with practical help, but also the greatest patience. And the public were keen to do exactly that, but they were keen to do it for Charlie. The mayor of Christchurch pulls together this big public meeting, and everyone agrees immediately to raise £10,000 to purchase a farm for Charlie. They know that's what he wants to do, to live on a farm, simple life. And unsurprisingly, Charlie hates the idea. (laughs) Like, loves the idea of owning a farm, but, yeah. He he didn't believe it would feel like his, and he felt wrong about accepting that money, you know. And he felt a bit trapped, I think. Like, he acknowledged the generous spirit of it, but he was desperate not to accept it. So he writes a letter to the mayor, which was immediately printed by all the papers. The mayor just passes it on. He's like, (laughs) check out how awesome this guy is. So they they print it, which he hates. (laughs) And the letter's well worth reading in full because it's just, it's a beautiful portrait of Charlie. I've just got a snippet of it here just to summarise his key argument. He says... Under no circumstances could I consent to any material gain for myself for any services that I, in conjunction with 100,000 more, rendered to the empire in her hour of peril. And I most humbly request that you will understand my position in having to decline the province's most generously intended gift. And he ends the letter by suggesting that the money be used to, this is another quote from the letter, alleviate genuine distress among the children of those men who gave their all for us, and to help brighten the lives of those men who, because of some war disability, are unable to lead a full life in the community. And so that's what happened. The Charles Upham Scholarship Fund was put together and it was administered by trustees, and people that, you know, Charlie knew Kippenberger was one of them. As for Charlie, he eventually purchased a farm at Raffa Downs. Yes. He'd only purchase it once he was assured that he wouldn't get any special rates or, like, the same purchase as everyone else. Finally, in December of 1945, Charlie takes the ferry to Wellington. He's straining his eyes up to the ship above him. And finally, he can see her up there. Molly's home.
0: Oh, stoked finally home
1: (laughs) yeah so they throw themselves into their new life and they you know make a home for themselves on their farm
0: i'd hate to be a rabbit on his farm oh yeah do you reckon you'd get a grenade up yeah yeah probably straight down the hole
1: (laughs) (laughs) judy would occasionally call though so he couldn't always spend his time blowing up rabbits later that year charlie was compelled to attend a, a victory parade back in london and in 1950 He was invited to the opening of a memorial in Greece and they were attempting to honour the soldiers from Britain, Australia, New Zealand, you know. They gave everything to help out in 1941 and the Minister of Defence and the Prime Minister couldn't successfully convince Charlie to go. So only when Kippenberger called did Charlie agree and Kippenberger said, look, it's just going to be you and me, it's going to be a low-key affair. (laughs) Charlie said, I can't go, I have to shear my sheep. (laughs) Kippenberger yeah. replies, he's like, I've already covered it, mate. I've got your neighbour to do it for got you. Got some shearers in. Yeah. yeah, so sheep taken care of, Charlie finally agrees to go. Sanford ends his book, Mark of the Lion, by highlighting the sacrifice of Charlie, but also you know, the millions of men and women who sacrificed absolutely everything. He writes, and as the years re- relentlessly push further into history, the events of 1939 to forty-five may the rest of us never forget or allow to be forgotten how the young men of those times struggled to preserve their world for the younger ones who enjoyed it today. Charles Upham eventually died on the 22nd of November 1994 at the ripe old age of 86, and it was a massive funeral. Thousands lined Christchurch streets, and his coffin was escorted by an honour guard of of, uh, 100 soldiers. Um, Molly survived another six years. She eventually died in 2000, and her ashes were buried along with Charlie's. They had a family plot in Christchurch. So, finally, Charlie can rest. There you go. He won't be burdened by his status anymore. But, you know, we can still appreciate what a Pacific legend he is.
0: Yeah, he wouldn't be into this, would he? he no, he would he not be into this at all. He not listen to this podcast.
1: Yeah. I sort of just wanted to close and just to really ram home his status as Pacific legend. Yeah. Show how unleashed he really was. Yes. Tom Scott, in his book, Searching for Charlie, writes the following. Charlie earned five VCs in North Africa, on top of the three VCs Kippenberger felt he rated on Crete. At a bare minimum, he deserved a bar to his VC for his feats at Minkar Khaim, where the 2nd New Zealand Division was surrounded by Rommel's Africa Corps. His superior officers thought so, and there is no question he deserved another bar to his VC for his feats at Ruizat Ridge, where New Zealand troops led a nighttime assault on enemy-held higher ground. Again, everyone thought so, but at the time, a war was being waged and the pinning of crimson ribbon on khaki fabric was not a high priority. Paperwork involving citations was shelved but not forgotten. When the time came to consider these matters again, his commanding officers were never going to nominate Charlie for five more VCs. The British would never have accepted it, and why would they? On the face of it, no man could ever be that brave. It defied common sense. It just wasn't humanly possible.
0: Mm, Too much gallantry.
1: A little too much gallantry. Yeah. Yeah, they couldn't handle it. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. So that's the story of Charles Upham.
0: Oh, Pacific legend. Yeah.
1: Unleashed. Unleashed from his days on,
0: you know, the high country of
1: Canterbury, through his exploits in the World War and his return home.
0: Yeah, and if you if you like that story, you should definitely give Mark of the Lion a read.
1: Mm, Really good book. Yeah. Yeah, and worth watching too. You can just find it on YouTube. It's his little spot on This Is Your Life. It's most notable for how uncomfortable it is.
0: <laughs> It'd be awkward. He just does not
1: want to be there. Poor guy. You feel for him.
0: I'm just amazed they haven't made a movie about him. Yeah, it's I know, crazy. I know Tom Scott talks about how he's written a script and yeah, if Hollywood ever calls, he's, he's got it ready to go. Ready to go, yeah. Um, but yeah, unbelievable story.
1: I'm I think a high production value like series, ten episodes would be the way to go. Yeah, yeah. Let's do it.
0: Okay. Let's branch who would, out. Who would you get to play? I could do it. I was just thinking more like Arnold Schwarzenegger, but... Oh, yeah? Sure. La vista, <laughs> yeah. Well, Much of a muchness. Okay, you'd, you'd be cheaper. Six you'd of be, one, half a dozen of another. You'd be cheaper. Yeah. Okay, I so... I don't know about that. That wraps up our third character.
1: Third legend. Yeah. Yep.
0: Signing off. Pacific Legends. Unleashed. Un- unleashed. Oh.